Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A special live 2 p.m. edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. All of you, I think, out there know that typically we rerun at 2, the uh, 9 a.m. live show. Uh, But this monumental decision by the United States Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade could not go unanswered uh, by this show. And I'm very grateful to the uh, panel that we've gathered very quickly to help us understand what this ruling means uh, to the state of Georgia uh, specifically, and also how the court came to the ruling that it made and what other implications there might be Uh, in the language that at least one of the justices, Clarence Thomas, used as he wrote his opinion on this uh, race, um, on this this, uh, case. Um, Just very quickly, I want to say what's interesting to me is that when you read the language of the ruling that was released today, you realize there were very few changes over what Uh, the leaked document that Samuel Alito wrote uh, a couple months back now, uh, uh, that that document, which was leaked publicly, uh, this one reads pretty much the same way, including Alito saying that Roe was an egregiously decided case in the first place, that there is nothing in the Constitution that guarantees the right to privacy. And the very uh, conclusion of of the uh, ruling is pretty much the same. It reads, quote, we therefore hold that the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. Roe and Casey must be overruled, and the authority to require abortion must be returned to the people and their elected representatives. With that, let's get to our panel today. Um, Greg Bluestein, political reporter for the AJC, is with us. Greg, uh, thank you, because I know you're busy filing copy left and right on reactions uh, to this thing. One quick comment. You know, you'd think by now we'd be inured to shocking news, to big news breaking and giving us a powerful reaction one way or the other. And yet, and we kind of knew what was going to happen in Dobbs. And yet, whether you are uh, uh, anti-abortion or or pro-choice, this ruling hit people very, very hard, Greg. Yeah, and Bill, that's why I'm so glad we're doing shows like this, so we have time to explore the ruling, the the aftermath. I mean, it's only been a few hours, but we're already getting flooded with reaction, and it's going to reshape the way that we see our political campaign. So I'm very glad you you organized this special show. And I'm glad you could be here for it. Donna Lowry is back uh, with us. She, of course, is host of Lawmakers and of the brand-new GPB-TV show, Lawmakers Beyond the Dome, the weekly show that will uh, begin in late July, July 24th, Sunday afternoon at 5 o'clock. You'll be on once a week starting in uh, late July, Donna. Well, we're not sure it's once a week yet, but we, we will start oh. on a regular basis beginning then. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, thank Glad you for be being uh, with us today. Sure. Um, Amy Steigerwald. Amy Steigerwald, you were on with us this morning. We did not have any notion really that Dobbs was going to be released. We knew the court at 10 a.m. was going to start releasing some opinions. Almost the minute we got off the air, uh, they released the Dobbs opinion. And thank you for being willing to come back again. Happy to be here. Professor of political sciences and associate department head uh, at Georgia State University. And also, uh, Amy Steigerwald is uh, a great student and has spent a lot of her career focusing on looking at how federal courts do their work. And I'm very happy that uh, Professor Andre Gillespie, Professor of Political Science, Director of the James Weldon Johnston, Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory, could be with us today. And, and to you, the same thing I said to the others, uh, Andre, thank you at the last minute for jumping in to do this show. My pleasure. So, Greg, I, I, I do want to get into the... Uh, to the decision and the language uh, uh, about the ruling. But I'd really kind of like to back into that because I want to start about what it means here in the state of Georgia. And and the first thing about that 
is we have a heartbeat law in Georgia, a law that basically says that after six weeks, a woman uh, can no longer legally get an abortion. That was passed two sessions ago, uh, signed into law by Governor Kemp. It was um, initially, um, uh, it's been held up in the appeals court, federal appeals court, because the court said, uh, we want to wait to see what happens to uh, the Dobbs case. Uh, And so they now know. And the question becomes now, will it be the 11th Court of Appeals that will look at what uh, the Dobbs ruling is and essentially say, well, that's it. This law can go into effect. We, we don't quite know how that's going to develop. Yeah, we'll be watching that closely. But Georgia does not have a trigger law. It does not have a law that, that automatically implements abortion restrictions if Roe v. Wade is overturned. And that is why eyes are on the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals and the, and the other um, judges considering these cases to see if, if, uh, if and when um, Georgia's uh, anti-abortion, what the Republicans call the heartbeat law, is implemented. But at, at, at this moment, um, it is not implemented. And so folks can still, and, and, and advocates are reminding Georgians that um, the law has not changed, and you can go still get abortion procedures and, and, and have access to abortion rights right now. Uh, but, Amy, uh, with, just with regard to the federal case, um, the lawsuit that was brought mm-hmm. to stop the law from going into effect, into effect in federal court, uh, there is really nothing to suggest that the federal courts would have anything to do at this point but to say, yes. This law is constitutional legal based on Dobbs. Am I right about that? You are correct. Um, the state is going to, if they have not already, very quickly file a motion which says basically the precedent has changed and so therefore the court has sort of no grounds other than to uh, dismiss the case, right, on the basis of this because, right, following the new Supreme Court precedent. And so uh, that the procedure is going to take place. So it, it's not an if, it's more of a, a when that we're likely to see some sort of change happening. Um, maybe not today, but next week. Um, it's going to be, that portion is going to be fast. Uh, the only way that um, there could be some way the, that the law does not go into effect because there is now not a constitutional case that can be made, especially in federal court, um, is if there is instead a case brought in Georgia court utilizing the Georgia Constitution. So the Georgia Constitution does have um, a privacy clause. And so that's where we're going to now see a shift is these uh, all the, the, the legal d- debate will now all shift to state courts because it is not uncommon for state constitutions to have legal protections and to define rights in ways that the federal constitution does not. And so we might try to see a case done there. Now, what will happen with that? I don't know. Um, That will obviously wind away, but that would be the only way that we might see the law not go into effect really quite quickly. Uh, There are trigger laws in, I think, eight states, Andra, which would, in fact, say once the court ruled our our anti-abortion laws go into effect, and uh, Kentucky, Louisiana, Missouri, and South Dakota put theirs into effect today as soon as the Dobbs ruling came out. Um, there's probably eight more states that are going to move fairly quickly. Uh, and eventually, Andra, uh, most people who follow this closely believe half the states in this country will outlaw abortion, Andra. Um, I mean, I'm not surprised by that. I think this is what we were all anticipating once we saw uh, the leaked opinion of of the case. Um, you know, we also knew that there were states that had abortion laws that were on the books that predated Roe that were never taken off the books that can now go into effect. Um, we should also acknowledge that in a lot of these states, it was actually already really hard to get an abortion. So in particular, mm-hmm. you didn't live in, near an urban center um, or if you were poor, you had a really hard time finding abortion access in your state. So this is just affirming 
the things that we've seen so far. The question that I have for uh, the state of Georgia is whether or not uh, there will be either a special session this summer or whether next year um, in the regular January uh, session there will be legislation that's viable to, that will be introduced that might actually even further restrict abortion access than HB 481 did. That's a really interesting question, Donna, because uh, at least there's a six weeks uh, 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 timetable with which right now a woman could get an abortion. Georgia could very well, the legislature could go in and ban abortion entirely in the state. Yeah. So remember that uh, Governor Kemp, when he campaigned in 2018, promised he'd sign the toughest abortion laws in the country. Um, and there's already been pressure on him to call a special session of the Georgia legislature because, um, they, you know, David Perdue called upon him to do that, to enact a stronger abortion law um, than this, the, the so-called Life Act or the so-called heartbeat bill, I should say. Um, so he, he asked for that special session back after the leaked opinion. And, and Kemp, in a statement today, said, you know, talking about the historic victory in the on for uh, this um, this law today, um, did did not talk about a special session, but there's still a question on whether he will do it. The, the pressure will certainly still be there because if he doesn't have it now and say he loses to Stacey Abrams and then we go into the legislative session in January, there is the possibility of someone trying to pass a law. But then, of course, as we've known from Stacey Abrams, that she would likely veto it. So anybody who's interested in pushing a stricter law may, may be wanting a special session now to make sure that they can make it, they can get it through, um, given that they, they, we're not sure what's going to happen in November. Greg? Yeah, Donna makes such a great point. There's this Republican rift, uh, internal rift, this will just inflame. You know, we talk about all the partisan clashing, but this really um, escalate the divisions among Republicans because not so long ago, only sort of far right um, fringe Republicans supported an outright ban on all abortions. And when we say that, we also we're talking about uh, abortions in the case mm. of rape, incest, and when the life of the woman, the mother is at stake. Well, now that is um, sort of a standard uh, stance for many Republicans, including Senate hopeful um, Herschel Walker uh, and and uh, Lieutenant Governor candidate Burt Jones. And so you're going to hear a lot of um, talk from Republicans about going further and banning all or trying to ban all abortions in Georgia. But we should also remember that um, the 2019 law passed with just one vote to spare in the Georgia House. It was a fraught, emotional debate, very divisive. And many Republicans either didn't vote at all or sided with um, Democrats. So it's unlikely that the governor would call a special session, um, at least in the next few months, to to try to uh, uh, revive this issue. He feels like uh, the 2019 law is the one of the strictest on the books, but at the same time, he'll be under pressure to do so. Donna, uh, you watched this unfold, this debate over that bill unfold. And, and here's what I think is important to remember. Um, initially, when, a, uh, when an anti-abortion bill was being contemplated uh, in the legislature, both Speaker Ralston and Governor Kemp uh, seem to be urging legislators to be cautious about going too far, about, about uh, you know, offering language that would still have room for abortion but wouldn't all but, but um, uh, outlaw it in the state. And the pressure from their constituents, from conservative Republican constituents, pushed them to the point where they passed this very, very restrictive uh, heartbeat law. And what, what I think is going to be interesting to watch now is, given the Dobbs case, it appears that Republicans have gone more all in on eliminating abortion as much as possible in a way that they weren't ready to do. As Greg points out, in 2019, that passed by only one vote. Yeah, that, it was a really tough time, uh, very emotional. And, and I think the reason we don't have a law in Georgia that's as restrictive as Mississippi is because of the speaker and the governor not wanting to go as far as they did. But then, you know, there's the uniqueness of the Georgia law, which has the um, the personhood part of it, which is something that, you know, nobody else has in terms of their bill. So the, this personhood 
that the fetus has legal rights to, you know, as an embryo um, once the fetal cardiac activity is detected. And so that the mother could claim the fetus on the taxes, possibly the fetus could be part of a census count, uh, child support claim, that kind of thing. So, yeah, Georgia didn't go as far as some of the other states, but still very restrictive. And now we're going to find out what happens, you know, on the next step. It, there were people the night of the vote who did not show up for the vote because they didn't want to be, they were in close elections. Um, they were in, in areas where they were afraid of voting one way or another. There were Democrats who actually voted, a few Democrats who voted for it, but that one vote, that one vote was, is what took it over. So it may, as Greg points out, it may be tough to uh, bring a special session that would add, that would try to make things stricter uh, right now. You know, I still wouldn't be surprised if things tried to come up that would actually try to align Georgia's legislation with the realities of this new case. Donna, when you bring up um, mm -hmm. uh, the idea of personhood, right, that has to become an issue because in Roe versus Wade, Blackman is very clear that the reason why, like, he can't protect fetuses is that they're not written into the Constitution, right? It's persons born into the United States. And so this was uh, the author's way of trying to align that. Um, you know, I just went and did a word search kind of through the decision to see if it's talking about personhood, and I'm not seeing anything that's coming up there. Um, this is brought up in the dissent, but uh, rape and sex life of the mother exceptions are not brought up. I could see this being a terrain where there's still probably going to be legal challenges, and so we'll see that probably come up with South Dakota and Oklahoma first. Um, but, I mean, this is still going to be hotly contested. This is going to still be a really contentious issue. And I think Georgia legislators, even pro-life ones, are going to have to make decisions about how far do they want to go with this now that they have the freedom to, de to decide this and define this for themselves. The other Maybe. side is going to be what happens now that what had been, in fact, something that was solely symbolic is now real. Right, so it sort of gets at both of these debates that we saw on it, but the reality is that, you know, what, like, it only passes by one vote, right, in the Georgia Assembly, and in part, even for those who voted for it, they knew it wasn't going to become law. It was a truly symbolic vote because it went completely against the standing uh, Supreme Court precedent. We know that the public opinion polls show that most of the population, in fact, does not want to see Roe v. Wade completely overturned, wants it right, does not believe, in fact, that abortion should be fully outlawed. And so now this has shifted greatly, and it is reality, but it means now that very difficult practical questions have to be answered. Questions like, if a woman is experiencing a miscarriage, what happens when she goes to the hospital? <clears throat> Is she now going to be investigated? Does it have to be reported? Is she going to be investigated for whether or not she did something to cause that? Now, note that approximately 33 to 40% of all pregnancies will end in miscarriage, even those that are wanted. So that's a really high number of women that are doing that, right? What is going to happen in the sense of uh, dealing with the complications that come up, right? What does this personhood mean? And is that, since that's part of the law, is that perhaps going to be used to even say that there are, that it is basically a ban on all, right? Because how can you have a personhood portion and also have, right, any type of abortion? So perhaps, right, those parts cancel out. And these are going to be questions that people don't want to answer, right? This is now, generally, there's a saying that you don't want to criminalize the woman. Well, now we're going to be getting into that, especially, again, with the personhood component, right? If we're saying that something is done and what is that going to be, right? There's a lot of women who don't know that they're pregnant. So, yeah, maybe they've had a glass of wine. Well, does this now mean that all women of childbearing age are not allowed to drink alcohol because they are potentially – uh, at least for one week out of every month, right, right, that they're going to be, because they have the, the ability to get pregnant, interpreting that and how far are we going to take this, right, what is going to happen to doctors who might be doing that or the decisions that they're making if complications do arise, right, there is still in there a uh, component, but how is that decision going to be made? Are doctors going to feel as they have that? And so there's a lot of practical questions that now have to be answered. And they likely are ones, in fact, that are going to become very difficult for a lot of the supporters of these bills to want to answer. 
Uh, Greg, I, I want to pick up on Amy's point there. Uh, in some ways, the uh, legislators who have been voting for uh, 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 anti-abortion uh, measures for some time now uh, are suddenly like the dog who catches the car. I mean, they're now stuck with it. They own it. And there's got to be some discomfort or at least question in some of their minds as to whether or not this is going to accrue to them in a positive way as they uh, face their constituents. Yeah, Bill, you're exactly right. I just got off the line with Stacey Abrams, who said the same thing. She said, you know, to a degree in 2019, a lot of these lawmakers thought they were shielded, you know, by Roe v. Wade. They thought it was unthinkable at the time that Roe v. Wade, for many at least, that Roe v. Wade would be overturned. Well, now we're in a reality, and we have been for the last few weeks, that where we, 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 we knew that was the likelihood, and now it's happened. Um, and so uh, many of those lawmakers who had faced very tortured decisions, I remember uh, I'm thinking of one lawmaker in particular from a conservative area who was really personally, his constituents favored the anti-abortion law, but he personally didn't. And he was having a very, um, very uh, in public fraught time deliberating on whether or not he should vote for it. He ended up voting for the anti-abortion measure. And I remember, I'll never forget, as we walked out of the legislative chamber um, late one night, during the session, he just I just kissed away my district. Now he ended up winning. He's still there, um, but you know, will this cause a a tremendous backlash among, particularly among women? It very well could. Now I, I, I checked in with some Republican strategists too. Their goal is going to be the same goal it was three weeks ago, four weeks ago, five weeks ago. They want to make this a referendum on Joe Biden. They want to make this a referendum on the handling of the economy. Um, and they feel like, you know, in the end, the pocketbook matters, you know, the inflation, high energy prices, gridlock in Washington will still prevail over concerns about abortion. But we just don't know. It's so early right now. Um, I'll tell you what, I'd love to get our first break of the show out of the way right now. <clears throat> Excuse me. When we come back, I want to do two things, if I can, with all of you on the panel. One, I want to kind of look at the broad sweep of this decision and just how significant it is as it fits into other important Supreme Court decisions. How breathtaking uh, is today, was today uh, in the context of history. And then, of course, I want to look at it in terms of the impact it could have on elections here in Georgia and, for that matter, across the country. And we'll dip into some of the statements that are being made by uh, Georgia political leaders. We'll do all that more after we pause for these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Amy Steigerwald, Donald Lowry, Andrew Gillespie, and Greg Bluestein join us for this special 2 p.m. live edition of Political Rewind, reacting to the uh, U.S. Supreme Court decision in uh, the Dobbs case, which in which they uh, uh, overturned Roe. Roe is no longer the law of the land. Just saying those words, Greg, Roe is almost 50 years old. It was decided, it, the ruling came out in 1973. And just saying those words, that Roe is no longer the law of the land, is there something startling about that, given that you weren't even born, Greg Bluestein, when <laughs> no. the court ruled on Roe in the first place? And there are, I think there are a couple, at least one more of you on this panel who might be in that same position. Yes, yeah, a couple more. <laughs> Two more. But no, it's nearly years old. <laughs> this has been the law of the land for a half century. I mean, and again, like a cornerstone of everything I've known in my entire life, everything my wife's known. Uh, and frankly, you know, even my parents, you know, uh, my mom's generation, more than half of, of her life, this has been a fundamental cornerstone of the law. And as we said earlier, so many people, even Republicans who wanted it struck down, um, couldn't have imagined reality two, three years ago where this could happen, and now we're in it. Um, Amy, uh, Speaker Pelosi said to reporters today a lot. She was angry. She was very emotional, I think it's safe to say. One of the things she said that was fascinating um, was 
um, uh, I have uh, women. Women today have less rights uh, because of this decision than their mothers did. She's Amy, are not you there? incorrect. Are in, you? Yes, she, she is not incorrect in that assessment of where that goes, and um, it is difficult not to talk about this opinion in the context of what it means for other precedents that we have long relied upon, given the reasoning that the court utilized. Um, many of the things that people rely upon are not, in fact, written textually into the Constitution. The right to association is not an enumerated right. The right to travel is not an enumerated right. The right to marriage is not an enumerated right. Um, I could go on. There's a lot more. And especially when discussing it in the context of what we thought at the time when the constitutional provisions were ratified, that again brings up a lot of uncomfortable questions about things of two. Because to be perfectly blunt, uh, when most of these constitutional provisions were written and ratified, um, women, right, as well as people of color, were obviously not equal citizens. Um, the issues with race were obviously addressed with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Um, one of the questions, though, is if we use this same argumentation, there is not long after Roe, uh, around the same time, actually, one of the first decisions was 1971, and then 73-76 were all in that same time period, were the various cases talking about um, applying equal protection analysis to sex, to whether or not women and men could be treated differently under the law. Um, there is, in fact, still to this day, and uh, current Justice Thomas is, in fact, one who adheres to it, that the 14th Amendment, when ratified, was only talking about race. It was not, in fact, extending to uh, other provisions, including that of extending it to sex and differences between men and women. And so under this argumentation, that entire line of cases that says, for example, women can't be barred from serving on juries, that uh, women can, in fact, and be stopped from uh, operating in uh, other things that they should not be allowed to, that they can't be lawyers, they can't be doctors. There were a whole bunch of books like this, uh, laws that were on the books, uh, some up until the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, in fact. Uh, similar argumentation happens. And so there is now going to also be a very real question about how far this reasoning is to be taken. And we also have the fact that Thomas's concurrence laid out that he would like cases to be brought to the court challenging these same things. Well, yeah, and I'm glad you opened the door to that. Uh, Donna, um, one of the things that Alito does in his opinion is he says that when the court looked at Roe, they couldn't really locate the provision in the Constitution. It, it was about privacy, the right to privacy. But Alito said they kind of kept looking around at various sections of the Constitution and the amendments, trying to figure out where that right to privacy is located. And they're, they were very squishy in, in how they uh, dealt with that whole issue. Okay, so if privacy, as Clarence Thomas would say, is the basis for why Roe v. Wade uh, was first uh, established, uh, Thomas says in his concurrent opinion that we ought to look at all the privacy uh, uh, issues. And that includes uh, what happened in Griswold, which is a 1965 decision that declared married couples had a right to contraception. Lawrence v. Texas, which invalidated sodomy laws and made same-sex sexual activity legal. And Oberfell, which of course was the important case establishing the right of gay couples to marry. Now, in the overall ruling of Alito, they, he tries very hard to, to separate out Roe from the rest. He says, this only deals with Roe. But the fact that Thomas has this concurring opinion makes it clear that everything's fair game. Yeah, it really looks like they were really reaching when it comes to the whole privacy issue, that they were really digging in, trying to find something to... Um, to to justify what what to justify what they decided to the decision they decided to make, but Thomas is clear 
in this decision, uh, apparently about what he wants to see happen, that he'd like to see more happen in terms of over uh, overturning of some of these other crucial rulings over the years that he has had this. And I think Amy alluded to it. He's kind of had it in his mind for a while that uh, certain the 14th Amendment and other things mean have a certain meanings, and he'd like to see a lot of this stuff revisited. Uh, and there, there was even the question on whether uh, IVF things like in vitro fertilization will come into question uh, under all of this. And so there, are, there, I think part of it, of course, is the ruling today and and what what it actually means. And they're still trying to figure out that. But then there's these implications about what we might see down the road that has a lot of people worried. You know, I think that there are a lot of issues that come up with this. And so uh, Greg and Donna have mentioned this already. State constitutional provisions often, and Amy actually mentioned this, state constitutions often enumerate more rights than our federal constitution, our national constitution does. And so I think the question is going to become, especially in states that are going to enact abortion restrictions, whether or not their constitutional privacy clauses are going to somehow interfere with these plans to restrict abortion, or whether or not it would actually mitigate some of the things that people are worried about, which is people um, surveilling internet searches to see if you're buying RE486 and all of these other kinds of things that are um, important. Um, you know, I've been in this long conversation uh, with my uh, uh, friends from college all day, and, you know, we're of an age where if we're getting pregnant, we're trying real hard to get pregnant. So we're probably a little bit past the unplanned <laughs> stage. Um, but this is still something that hits close to home, right? And people are, are, are talking about this. And one of my friends who is interracially married was like, so my marriage is next. And, and my response kind of was, Clarence Thomas isn't going to invalidate his own interracial marriage, but it's just the idea that uh, rights that people have relied on for so long have the potential to be taken back. Thomas isn't a fan of precedent. Like, I used to show this video in my class where he would talk about how stare decisis wasn't a real thing. Um, and he was speaking to the Federalist Society. So this comes here, but the idea of precedent means that we could be in a period right now of whiplash, um, where things that people have grown accustomed to are going to be taken away, and then if there's a change in the composition of the court, so we say something happens where you have a justice who dies unexpectedly, and then they get replaced by an ideologically dissimilar justice where all of a sudden those rights get reinstated until the composition of the courts gets shifted again. Like, this, like we've always known the court was political, but it wasn't supposed to be political in this kind of way. That's why precedent matters. Also, just as a matter of policy, right, I think people in the pro-life movement are going to have to think about what this means. People have already been called on the fact that the states that are usually most likely to, you know, institute uh, really, really stringent pro-life policies also tend to be the ones where if we look at um, outcome rates for people in the middle of their lives tend to not be good. So high maternal mortality, high infant mortality, high child poverty, lower education rates. So it's like if you're going to have a culture of life, you got to figure out what culture of life looks like when you're like immediately past uh, birth. And, you know, just finally, in terms of thinking about this as a matter of policy, right, in the, in, the, in the decision, they keep on talking about how there were lots of anti-abortion laws around the founding, and that should inform how we're thinking about this. Well, if Thomas wants to go after contraception, which from a policy standpoint, I think is actually a smart way to go there. If you're going to be anti-abortion, you need to be really pro-contraception um, in order to prevent people from getting to this. So I'm just going to be, just say this, and it's going to sound somewhat crude. Um, lambskins have to be older than 50 years old. So obviously people knew how not to get pregnant 200 years ago. And so you have to kind of stop. Um, have, we kind of have to stop and think about that. But, I mean, there are lots of things that, that, that people need to think about. And also I'll, I'll end with this. I remember when I had to read Roe as a college student, I realized, oh, I, we can't have a child policy, a one-child policy in the U.S. the same way that we had um, in China um, because of Roe. So, like, you know, on the other hand, we think about this abortion thing, but it extends to all other issues related to reproduction beyond that. And now we're going to have to rethink that. And there are a lot of people who don't trust the people who are kind of in decision-making positions right now because of how they've behaved about this issue. Um, Greg, uh, and Natalie Mendenhall just sent me a statement from former President Donald Trump. I won't read all of it, but this is essentially what he says. Today's decision, which is the biggest win, all caps, he loves that, for life, all caps, in a generation along with other decisions that have been announced recently, were only made possible because I delivered everything as promised 
including nominating and getting three highly respected and strong constitutionalists confirmed the United States Supreme Court. Well, it's true. I mean, this is a Trump court, and this is going to be a Trump legacy. Uh, but I think you've got to share the credit, uh, Mr. Former President. Um, Mitch McConnell uh, yeah. blocked the nomination of Merrick Garland for a year uh, because he wanted a conservative court and then rushed the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett just weeks before the presidential election. So uh, Trump can't take sole credit uh, for this. Um, Republicans have been working to create a court just like this one for literally decades to decades. overturn Roe. Yeah, I agree. This is, this is a vindication of that Republican strategy in a, in a very large sense of remaking um, the, the highest levels and the federal courts, the highest levels of the federal judiciary. And yes, Mitch McConnell played a huge role in that, especially in the last four or five years. Um, and so did, of course, former President Donald Trump, but so did a lot of conservative activists uh, and voters. You know, I, you know, how many times did we talk to conservative voters in 2016 who were really skeptical of Donald Trump and said they, they're going to hold their nose and vote for him anyway because of his picks on the Supreme Court? And now because of those picks, you have – and remember, it's not, you know, as huge of a ruling as this is, um, there's been a series of conservative-friendly rulings. Um, I talked to Senator Jen Jordan shortly uh, before our, uh, the show. And she talked about the one-two punch. She's the Democratic nominee for attorney general. And she talked about the one-two punch of yesterday's ruling on gun laws in, in New York um, that, that vastly expand gun, gun rights as well. Um, and so we're going to see more rulings like that because the judiciary has been completely uh, over, overhauled over the last few years. Um, Amy, uh, the New York Times uh, just uh, uh, published on their website a little while ago an interesting piece in which they lay out what each of those Trump nominees and more had to say about uh, respecting uh, the court's decision in Roe during their confirmation hearings. And I'm not going to go into them in great detail, but essentially uh, uh, Brett Kavanaugh, uh, Amy Coney uh, Barrett, and uh, 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 Neil Gorsuch all essentially told the Judiciary Committee, we believe in stare decisis. Uh, we know precedent when we see it. This is a long established precedent, not only uh, Roe, uh, but uh, years later um, in, um, why am I blocking the, the, the next big uh, abortion? Uh, yes, uh, Casey made it clear these were uh, precedents that needed to be respected. Well, not so much. They have that power as Supreme Court justices, and to some degree, there is a question of, you know, what exactly they were agreeing to, and the fact that they could say that they recognized that they were precedents doesn't, in fact, mean that they weren't then going to be persuaded by arguments that they needed to be overturned. Um, I think the broader thing is, again, how far does this go? Because Greg is right in the sense of if you, it's, and, and I guess maybe Senator Jordan and, and candidate for, um, in talking about the one-two punch, because both of these decisions base it upon the argument that what we have to look at is the historical understanding of um, where what the Constitution said and dating it back to that. And the issue with that, of course, is that the world changes over time in ways that we can't always know and in ways that sort of belie the uh, reliance on that that the court is trying to give it, right? I mean, if you would have told any of the people, honestly, who ratified, for example, the 14th Amendment, that we have had our first black president, they probably would have walked with him. And that there are uh, people of color sitting, or women, actually, sitting on the Supreme Court, right? All of these things were unfathomable at that time, and certainly rights for them were unfathomable at the time. And so that sort of shows how this shifts in our understanding of these things shifts. Um, and I think the other side of it that comes into it is where this goes. So uh, I think one of the points that I'm trying to sort of really lay out to get people to understand is it's not just sort of more liberal rights that this interpretation and that this sort of – that the scope of the opinion are going to lay bare. Um, for example, they just passed right in the Georgia 
General Assembly a whole bunch of laws talking about parental rights. Well, all of those sort of claims about parental rights also come from the same esoteric, not written in stone idea uh, of the right to privacy and the right to be able to not only choose whether or not to bear or begat a child, but to uh, then have control over how you and input over how you raise that child. So all of that is now also uh, potentially, because again, that's not mentioned in there. And so I think those are really important questions that we're going to have to deal with and that probably a lot of people don't want to have to face about how this applies and how do we ensure that we do so in a non, in a consistent manner. I want to get to the final break of the show. When we come back, let's talk about the political consequences in Georgia in an election year of this ruling. Donna, before we do, very quickly, I would imagine that Senator Susan Collins, Republican from Maine, who said, I think it was, I think it was in reference to Brett Kavanaugh, um, one of you may correct me, he said, oh, I talked to him. He's going to affirm Roe. He believes Roe is settled law. Therefore, I'm going to give him uh, my vote. Susan Collins uh, has some questions to answer for her uh, uh, pro-choice uh, constituents, I would think, uh, today, Donna. Uh, absolutely. I, you know, I think there were there were some vote who voted during some senators who voted who really believed that he, that Kavanaugh and Amy Conan Barrett, that they were they, they believed that when they said Roe was the law of the land and it was pretty ingrained, for lack of a better word, in in our system. And then um, we found out today that that that's not the case. All right. So uh, we, you know, we know that elections have consequences and certainly Donald Trump's election as president led us to this day with the Supreme Court um, dominated by people he appointed conservatives. Well, what consequences might come out of the next election and how will Democrats and Republicans get us as voters to think about what those consequences could be if we elect one over the other? We'll talk about that when we come back in just a moment. By the way, if you want to keep uh, up, um, really, minute by minute, with what's happening as uh, news of the decision uh, by the Supreme Court continues to uh, get reaction, uh, gpb.org has a uh, real-time blog uh, going that you might find uh, useful. Um, So, Greg, let's start with the governor's race. Uh, We haven't, I have not heard yet, you may know differently, I have not seen uh, Brian Kemp put out a statement on video, talked to reporters yet. But Stacey Abrams very quickly put up a statement on Twitter. She was obviously prepared to do it because we're going to play it, and you'll hear it has a, it has music in the background. It's a it's a produced piece. Let's listen to it. As a woman, I am appalled. As a Georgian, I am enraged. As an American, I am disgusted by this abdication of all we hold dear. We are better people than this. And we deserve to have our freedoms protected, not stripped away. As of today, the threats to our right to choose are no longer theory. It is a fact that in Georgia, forced pregnancy is now the law of the state. The draconian abortion ban signed into law by the current governor in 2019 makes it a crime to seek an abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. Soon, Georgia women will lose their right to choose before most even know they're pregnant because of this governor's callous decision to put his politics above women's health care needs. Um, okay, so that's Stacey Abrams, Greg. Uh, the uh, governor's office put out a statement <clears throat> which includes uh, this, quote, um, he hopes that, quote, the law will be fully implemented and ultimately protect countless unborn lives here in the Peach State. So there it is. There's the battle uh, set up for the general election campaign, Greg. There it is in a nutshell. And literally um, moments ago, um, the governor and Chris Carr, the attorney general, both um, uh, highlighted how the state has filed official action now asking the 11th Circuit um, to reverse the federal judge's ruling and allow Georgia's anti-abortion law uh, to take effect. So we have very stark differences over abortion on this front, 
Um, and you know, it, it can't, it can't be more, it can't be starker. I mean, I got off a line with Stacey Abrams not long before the show. Um, she was talking to reporters, um, about this and some other issues. And, and she said, um, and I want to quote here to make sure I have the, the, the quote completely right. But she said, if you're a woman in Georgia, you should be terrified right now. So that is, that is the, the narrative we're going to hear from Stacey Abrams going forward and from Governor Kemp, he is going to basically double down on the anti-abortion law he signed in into law in 2019. It was probably the most, the, the, the biggest um, bite of the apple that he took. It was this most significant legislation in 2019, shortly after taking office. Um, so Donna, uh, abortion today is the most significant issue in many races, uh, the, the, the Walker, uh, Warnock race too, um, and and others around the country. Question is how long that will be the case. But I do think it's significant to point out that um, the decision to elect either uh, Abrams or Kemp could have an enormous impact on how the state moves forward in being able to craft any other abortion laws that might uh, alter what is going to probably be the uh, law of the state here after the 11th uh, 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 appeals court weighs in. Right. So we, we already talked about the possibility of something happen during the, happening to uh, make a, the law even stricter to the, during the legislative session. But there's also something that happened during this past session, and that dealt with the abortion pill. Uh, the abortion pill, there was a bill for the abortion pill um, in Georgia that was voted on in the Senate. It passed along party lines, but then uh, it did not make it really any further. And this would require pregnant women to see a doctor in person before being able to get the, the abortion pill. So we, we um, it's, and that is being sent by mail or are given, you know, on state property, that kind of thing. So I think we will see a lot of this affecting what happens coming coming up in January. So, so, so Andrew, let me try to say frame my question in a less clumsy way than I just did. Um, voters can be, you know, will be offered a choice between Abrams and Kemp in on this issue. Uh, Stacey Abrams would say, if you elect me governor. We have, and we still have a Republican legislature. I promise I'm going to veto anything they bring to my desk that may, in fact, go even further than the law we have right now. Kemp apparently will say that uh, he might be open uh, to completely outlawing abortion. Yeah, I and mean, I think from a political standpoint, we have long seen Republicans use abortion as an issue to mobilize and rally their base. Um, and so a question becomes, is this year a victory lap? And then, like, what do they move on to? Um, and I think that there is still in the near term lots of things, you know, other culture war issues that I think Republicans are going to try to rally their base around. And in the immediate short term, I think that there are issues related to abortion that can still be used to mobilize Republicans. This has been a less effective issue for mobilizing Democrats. And so I think the big question this year is whether or not attitudes towards abortion, particularly trying to protect and preserve or expand abortion rights at the state level becomes a galvanizing issue for Democratic voters. So, you know, this isn't an issue that is going to unite all women, for instance. Uh, you know, partisanship matters more, and Republican women probably are not going to be moved by this. But I think there is going to be sort of a question of whether or not this happens. And so I think that part of it is just the merits of abortion. And then there could be this larger issue of talking about activist courts uh, taking away rights that were hard, hard fought. Um, that might also be another rallying point. I also expect that this is going to be a huge flashpoint in the Senate race in particular. Uh, Republicans were already very critical of Raphael Warnock being a pro-choice pastor and calling that uh, oxymoronic. Um, and despite all the revelations about Herschel Walker's children, I don't expect him to kind of like let go of that issue. And so I think that there is going to be some way that Walker in particular is going to try to use that in the Senate race. Uh, let's uh, pick up on that, Amy. Uh, here's what the Walker campaign released. The statement is, quote, this Supreme Court decision, decision sends the issue of abortion back to the states, which is where it belongs. Um, uh, he won't apologize, according to the statement, for erring on the side of life. So uh, Andrew's right. The two of them will fight over this uh, all the way till November. Decidedly. I mean, I think that we see both in the decision itself, but also in how people are reacting to it, two wildly different perspectives on what the question is. 
right? The majority opinion of the court talks a lot about there not being a right to abortion. And it talks a lot about the protection of unborn life. The pregnant woman is not mentioned in this really at all. Uh, The person who's making the decision is not mentioned in it, whereas the dissent, as well as, right, Democrats who are supporting it, right, focus on it as a right to privacy about a decision of whether or not to bear or begat a child and the fundamental decisions that go into that. Uh, There's a lot of focus similar to how we saw in Stacey Abrams' comments on, and I imagine we'll see uh, echoed by others, about uh, maternal mortality, about this question, right, using the term forced pregnancy of what's going to happen there, um, of the concerns about maternal welfare, right, the, the portion that got, because it really is, there are two different views, right? One is that this is about the woman and whether or not the woman has rights and has agency in all of this, whereas on the other side, it's a very clear focus on abortion and fetal protection. And so it really shows, and and I think we're going to see that now thought out, not just in a legal realm, but very much so in all of these races. So um, we got a little time remaining. Greg, uh, we see this is going to play out in the Senate race, U.S. Senate race, the governor's race. I assume to some extent the lieutenant governor's race and certainly the attorney general race. Are there other races? Are there congressional races, given that there's really only one swing congressional district in the state? I assume it's not going to be quite as big a deal in congressional races, is it? No, but we're looking at legislative races, too. We're going to be watching, especially in the suburbs, an area where Republicans are looking to make up some ground from 2018 and 2020 when they lost some seats, looking at that. And look, there is also going to be a renewed interest in not just the Senate race overall, but in whether or not there will be an attempt to roll back the filibuster in in the Senate right now and to codify Roe v. Wade or codify some abortion protections. So we'll watch that for that, too. I'm I'm running out of time, but I'm glad you mentioned legislative races, because I think one aspect of David Ralston's statement about today is particularly worth thinking about in terms of, of the legislature and legislative races. He says he's glad that the Supreme Court is making the states now decide abortion. But then he says, I'm proud that the House has also championed significant legislation to nurture a culture of life in Georgia, extending postpartum Medicaid coverage, providing paid parental leave benefits for state employees, modernizing Georgia's adoption code. Greg, that quite, in a very straightforward way, he's saying if abortion is harder to get, we're going to do everything we can to protect the lives of these children. And I mean, I think that's at least an effort to turn the corner a bit on this, right? Those were all bipartisan uh, issues he mentioned after the, the anti-abortion part. Okay, out of time completely. Um, Greg Bluestein, Donna Lowry, Amy Steigerwald, Andrew Gillespie, thank you on short notice for joining us for this special live 2 o'clock edition of Political Rewind. I learned a lot listening to you. I'm sure our uh, listeners did too. So thanks for being with us. We're out of time. Uh, We're going to be back with you on Monday with a brand new show. I'm sure there'll be more reaction to what happened at the Supreme Court today, and we'll get to all that and more. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care. Stay healthy, everybody. Bye.